I am in the church because people in the church loved me. I have not always had a positive feeling about the church. Being a preacher's kid, um, for some people and in some situations and some places, there were high expectations. And I know this is hard for you to believe, but I sometimes didn't meet those expectations. Once or twice. I specifically remember, I don't know, I was probably 11, 12 years old, maybe 10, with some friends running through the church basement, playing, and getting in trouble from one of the elders. But the only one whose parents were told about it was my dad. And that sort of stuck with me. It's been a long time ago, and I still remember it. I have not always had positive feelings about the church. As a pastor, I see, I don't know for lack of a better term, the underbelly of the church. I think back to the little country church where Cindy and I first served. And the parishioner who was antagonistic, and I'll be kind to say antagonistic about us starting a new ministry to try to reach young couples in the area. The two families who were at odds with each other, trying to get control of the church and getting caught in the crossfire of that. The couple that seemed to believe it was their calling in life to oppose everything we did and to make our lives miserable as much as they possibly could. The couple that screamed and yelled at me in my office because I wouldn't let them continue leading a ministry in the church because their home was in shambles. The gentleman who actually threatened to shoot me because some guys and I in the church had gone to his home and removed his wife and children from his abusive behavior against them. I have conflicting feelings about the church. But I'm in the church because there were people who loved me and who gave me a different perspective of the church. And I think back to when I was a teenager and the couple that worked with the youth group who welcomed me at their home anytime, day or night, and spoke words of kindness to me, loved me, were patient with me. And I think about the professor in college who gave me direction and guidance when I was adrift. I think about the church official who mentored me and helped to renew the the love for the church that my parents had instilled in me. I think about the churches where we have served and the many, many people and so many people in this church who have loved me, supported, encouraged, have made such a big difference. And I was thinking about all of that, my journey, as I read once again these words from Peter. When we, he begins this section in verse 8 saying, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. 
Be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because this you were called, so you may inherit a blessing. And I read that, and I think, yeah, I've heard that thousands of times all my life. And I think most of us read that and say, yeah, yeah, I know that. And then I read Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. And he says in verse 9, at least a part of verse 9, he simply says, Your job is to bless. Your job as the church is to bless. And something about that clicked for me. I suspect there are people in the church who would argue with him. They would say, no, 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 that's not our job as the church. Our job as the church is to to make sure people... Are, are morally right. Our job as the church is, is to make sure that, that we are the, uh, the moral police in our culture. Our job in the church is to, even, I mean, is to evangelize. It, it's to work at the social nature of, of people in the gospel. And, and to a certain degree, that's true. But first and foremost, Peter would say, our job, our calling as the church is to bless. That means, what does it mean to bless? And probably a lot of things going through our minds, but it seems to me, if you put it into a nutshell, to bless means to want for someone everything from God that I want for myself. Whatever I want God to do for me, whatever I want God to do in my life, To bless someone is to want that for them. And to be willing to sacrifice to see it happen. To be willing to give of myself to make it happen. To care enough about other people that I am willing to to give, sacrifice, surrender, do whatever I can so that they experience from God everything that I would love to experience from God. To bless. And in this first section... Peter is, I think, speaking specifically to the church about the church. At this point, he's not talking about blessing the world. He's talking about how we relate to each other as the church. And our job, our calling as the church is to bless each other. He's talking about how I treat you, how you treat me, how we treat each other. And it seems to me that one of the most profound ways in which the church relates to each other, the way in which we bless each other, is with our words. So much about relationship rises and falls with words. Now, I think we tend to to downplay the power of words. We say a lot of things. We use a lot of words every day and we... Quite frankly, I'm not sure they mean that much to us. We live in a society in which everything has to be written down. Every, you have to have a contract on paper. Why is that? Because verbal agreements don't mean anything anymore. We, we just don't trust what we say. And, and that just gets into our natural way of thinking. We don't think that much about words. But words are powerful. 
I remember hearing Dennis Kendall talk about how he said it suddenly dawned on him that outside of his relationship with Jesus, the most important relationship in his life took place with two puffs of air. He said it could be symbolized with three letters. I do. And he said, we've long since lost the marriage license. Five children later, five in-laws, seven grandchildren, two more on the way. And what started it all? Two puffs of air. Words. He said, she looks at me and says, you said it. So I look at her and say, you said it. It's what holds us together, he said. And you would think, you think about that, you think, well, just two words, just words. It is never just words. Words, once words are spoken, they have life. I was just reading this week, someone who said that in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, there are similarities. And one of the similarities in our relationship with each other that is, is, is reflective of our relationship with God is speech. God speaks. We worship a God who speaks. He speaks creation into existence. He speaks through prophets. He speaks through his word, scripture. We worship a God who speaks. Words are important to God. They have meaning. Which is why words that are intended to encourage and to express compassion and and grace and love are so painful when they're used to curse and to, and to injure and to harm. That, I think that's why Peter says in verses 9 and 10, he says, repay insult, not with insult. Don't repay evil with evil. And I find it fascinating that he connects insults and evil. We tend to not do that. We make layers, levels, right? I mean, we insult sarcasm. It's not evil. I mean, yeah, I said something to hurt someone, but well, evil. I mean, evil is dark stuff. You know, evil, evil is demonic. It's not evil. I was just standing up for what I believe was right. I know that I had to say it in a way that might have been abrasive, and I know that I hurt their feelings, but hey, I was standing up for what was right. But it's not evil. I know I probably shouldn't have shared that, what was shared with me in confidence, but it's not evil. It's just a prayer concern. Peter says, our words have the ability to make us a church that either encourages and uplifts or discourages and destroys. Words. What fascinates me as well is that he tells us that if we're going to be blessed by God as a church, if as a a people we are going to experience the blessings of Christ, it will only happen if we are people who are committed to blessing. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit 
a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech. He's telling us, you want to be blessed by Christ? You want to be a church that's blessed by Christ? Have a passion, a desire to bless each other. And the reason for that is because if, we're, if our desire and our passion is to bless each other, then we're loving each other. We're caring for each other. We're doing what Christ does. And it opens us up to receive more and more of the Spirit of Christ. But if our passion, our desire is self-centeredness, if we're not really interested in blessing each other, then we're not acting like Christ and we cut ourselves off from Christ. We become the church that we desire to be. Like Christ or not like Christ. And we're not going to be perfect. We're, we're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're, we're going to stumble. We're going to say things that we wish we hadn't said. But our passion for blessing each other will come out even in those moments because the first thing we're going to do is to go and apologize. We're going to seek forgiveness. We're going to try to make it right because our passion is to bless. To want what, what is God's very best for each other that we would want for ourselves. And I think when it comes to how we do that, we pray for God to make us people who want to bless. And maybe it will mean writing a letter or an email or having a phone conversation or probably better yet, a face-to-face conversation to say, I am sorry, forgive me. We're really simply acting like Christ. And that's why we come to this table. We come to this table of blessing. Because God in Christ has poured out the abundance of his blessing upon us. That's why we're here in the first place. And we come to this table and we receive his blessed gifts we're filled with his spirit of blessing so that we can bless each other. Peter is simply asking us to have a passion, a yearning, a desire to be people who want God's very best for each other. And we are willing to do anything we can and everything we can to make that a reality. Holy Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you have blessed us in Christ and particularly the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Father, as we prepare to come to this table, we ask that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. Let them be food to our souls. As we come today, we come together, recognizing our weaknesses, but rejoicing in the bond of of love and blessing that is ours through Christ. Let this table unify us.
through the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thinking, oh, there's more. It's not enough for us to bless each other. That's important. It's foundational. It is, it is so significant. But as we bless each other, we bless the world. We can't bless the world unless we are blessing each other. Unless there is unity and joy in the body, the world will see nothing of Christ. But once we do, as we commit ourselves to bless each other, that leads us to a heart, a spirit, a mind about blessing everyone else. And Peter is particularly talking about blessing people who oppose us. He asks this very interesting question in verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Like in a whole lot of people, right? It seems like an odd question to ask. It's, it reminds me of the person who said, if you, think, if you want people to expect people to, to the world to treat you fairly because you're good, it's sort of like expecting the bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. It, it, it doesn't really match up. And he, and he says, it, people are going to oppose you. That's just life. That's the way it is. Who's going to harm you? A lot of people. But I think he's saying to us, not we're not going to be harmed if you do good. But it's sort of in the sense of Romans 8, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there are lots of people against us, but there's a deeper meaning. It's the spiritual sense that despite people being against us, we hold firm in the faith. It's, it's the last words of Luther's great hymn, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We are going to be opposed as followers of Christ. Peter has been opposed, often persecuted. He writes as one. He's writing to people who've been scattered, more than likely because of persecution. They understand what it means to be opposed for their faith. And what is Peter's solution? What does he say is our response? Same. We bless. We want to fight. We want to defend. We want to impose. Peter says, bless. The people who oppose you, they need to see something different, something unexpected. They need to see and feel and hear you blessing them in spite of what they're doing to you. That you, we want what is best for them. We want every blessing of God to be upon them. Just as we want it upon us. Even though they're opposing us. Jesus says, you love people who love you? Big deal. Everybody does that. Now, loving people who hate you, that's a whole different thing. Years ago, I read an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune about a gentleman who went to the Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, a large megachurch. 
And he went there one Sunday and he wrote an article about it. And he had some complimentary things to say. But there were a lot of things about his experience that he was critical. And the next week he wrote a follow-up article. And the follow-up article was about all the responses he received from the original article. And he said, right on cue, I started getting hate mail. And it came from people claiming to be Christian. What's fascinating to me is that it's sad that people responded that way, but more fascinating to me is that that's what he expected people to do. He expected the hateful mail. Somehow, as the people of God, as the church of Christ, we do the unexpected and we bless. And I know it's hard because we want to defend and impose and, and force. And, and, and there's a place for standing up for our faith. But as he says, he says, you ought to be able to declare the reason for your hope in Christ. That's important. But do it in a spirit of gentleness and respect. We're not steamrolling people. We're loving them. We're blessing them. Is the end result, is the purpose of our declaration to win or to bless? Is the purpose of our our words and our actions to, to get people to see things the way we do or to love them so that the Spirit can use us as channels to get them to see things the way He does, to work in their lives? It's about being people who bless in the spirit of grace. And I think that's why Peter goes into this, what I would, seems to be a rabbit trail about Noah and Jesus preaching to people imprisoned. If you read that and you think, oh man, what is he talking about? And you could, you'll ask, you ask a hundred theologians, you'll probably get at least 50 different answers. I certainly don't know precisely what he's saying, but it seems to me that he's using that as an example. Here is Jesus with people who have rejected God, who refuse to listen to Noah's warnings, who turn their backs on every attempt God made to rescue them. And what is Jesus doing? Going and proclaiming One more time. And he has just said, remember, Jesus is the one, the righteous one, the perfect one who dies, not for the people who are righteous and good, but for the unrighteous. Jesus is all about grace. And if Jesus can be about grace to people who have rejected him, who have rejected God, who have rejected God's word, why wouldn't we be about grace too? There is something in us that wants people to get what they deserve. We all feel that way sometimes. The people who oppose us, and we don't deal with the same kind of persecution that Peter and and the people he's writing to deal with, but we do, we are sometimes responded to contemptuously. People politely ignore us, treat us as though we are insignificant and what we believe is insignificant. We're pushed to the margins. 
And Peter says, I know it's easy. You, you want to respond as I hope people get what they deserve. But Jesus' example is grace. They may still reject it. And then they, it has to be dealt with. But it is one more example of the calling on our lives to be people who bless. Who want every good thing from God for the people who oppose us and oppose the church. We still want God's best for them. Because we want them to know the grace of God in their lives. We want them to come to realize the joy and the peace and the love of Christ that we've experienced. And in a sense, that's what we do in baptism. And he moves from Noah and the, and, and the peace souls in prison to baptism. And he talks about how baptism saves us. And that makes us nervous. But I think it's because we, have a, we just have a different view of baptism than Peter does. For us, we have tended to take a perspective that baptism is an option. I think that would be difficult for them to grasp. Because for them, baptism is the very next logical step to opening one's heart to Christ. Of course, you be, but you're baptized. It's a part of, of what it means to come into the faith. And baptism is standing up as God's people as the church, and saying, anything good you see in me, it's Jesus. Anything good that you see in us, it's Jesus. Anything about our lives that you would look at and say, wow, they're blessed, that's Jesus. And we are standing up and declaring it. It is a public, visible, humble declaration of the risen Christ in us, individually and corporately. There are many places of the world where baptism is, is the moment when persecution either begins or intensifies. It is the public declaration, my life is about the risen Christ. No turning back. We're not rubbing people's faces in something. We're simply declaring, look at what God has done for us. Wouldn't you love to have God do that for you? Everything good that God has done in my life, everything that you might see in me that you could say is positive, God wants that for you. I want that for you. And I'm standing up here. I'm sacrificing. I'm putting myself on the line To declare that. Because I want nothing more than for you to experience the blessing of God that I've experienced. And ultimately, it all comes back to the risen Christ. It is the risen Christ at work in us individually and corporately that gives us the strength. When we want to defend, to love. When we want to to force ourselves and Christ and the church on people, we bless. When we want to impose, we share grace. And like God with us, we are patient and gentle and respectful and humble 
and kind. Because our primary interest is to be a channel of blessing to people, even people who are opposed to Christ. One of my favorite stories that Fred Craddock tells is about a missionary named Oswald Golter. In the 1940s, he had spent 10 years in North China. And his mission board sent him the money to buy a ticket to come home for some rest. He, he went from China and landed in India. And he had a layover of a few weeks. And while he was there, he discovered in a warehouse a, a, a group of people from a, a part of the world that no one wanted. They were outcasts. No one would welcome them, and so they were stuck in this warehouse with no place to go. His heart broke for them. So he went to visit them, and, and he, it was around Christmas time, and he said to them, Merry Christmas. I said, what would you guys like for Christmas? And they said, hey, wait, we're not Christians. We don't have anything to do with Christ. We don't celebrate Christmas. He said, I know, but what would you like for Christmas anyway? And after they talked for a while and he kept prying, they finally told him about some, some wonderful German pastries that they loved. So he spent the next few days scouring the city, looking for a bakery that made these pastries. And when he found one, he cashed in his ticket and he bought basketfuls of these pastries. And he took them to these people and he said, Merry Christmas. Later on, he was telling this story and a student said to him, but sir, why would you do that? They're not Christians. They don't celebrate Christmas. They don't even, they, they don't even believe in Jesus. And Golter said, I know. I know they don't believe in Jesus. But I do. As the church, our job, our calling is to bless. And my prayer is that through the power of the risen Christ, we will go out and be and do what we were created and redeemed to be and to do. Amen.